Giving talks in this room is a little like doing the tennis match thing. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought I would read you a poem, partly for your amusement, but partly because it fits, um, that came to me yesterday, or the day before. Um, And it's by um, Jan Beaumont, and it's called Afraid So. So you have to remember the title, Afraid So. Is it starting to rain? Did the check bounce? Are we out of coffee? Is this going to hurt? Could you lose your job? Did the glass break? Was the baggage misrouted? Will this go on my record? Are you missing much money? Was anyone injured? Is the traffic heavy? Do I have to remove my clothes? (laughs) Will it leave a scar? Must you go? Will this be in the papers? Is my time up already? Are we seeing the understudy? Will it affect my eyesight? Did all the books burn? Are you still smoking? Is the bone broken? Will I have to put him to sleep? Was the car totaled? Am I responsible for these charges? Are you contagious? Will we have to wait long? Is the runway icy? Was the gun loaded? Could this cause side effects? Do you know who betrayed you? Is the wound infected? Are we lost? Will it get any worse? I added I added two more lines. Will my mind continue to be crazed? Will my knee still hurt? However, there's another question, which is can there be an end to suffering? And the answer is yes. That's the Buddha's answer. So here we are, we're at the end of the second day of retreat, and already there have been a lot of revelations for all of you about your body and your heart and your mind, and not all of those revelations have been good news, I suspect, Um, but maybe some of them have, actually I've heard a few today that were. And you can see that there are times that are filled with struggle, lots of struggle, and there are moments of happiness and bliss. And sometimes, I was saying today in one of my groups, they're just woven together like the double helix, you know, all happiness and suffering all together. And one thing that's really important to hear is that this is true for everyone here. So you, with your suffering and your crazy mind and your aching knees are not alone. You are not the only person in the room who feels maybe like you're a little nuts. That's partly why we do group interviews, actually, if you ever wanted to know. It's just so you begin to hear that there are other people who are doing the same thing that you are, because we have this interesting human tendency to think it's all me, it's just me, and it's my mind and my suffering. And so 
one of the things that happens at retreats like this one, and for people who opt to do a practice like this one, is that we get kind of interested. Like, why is this so tough? Why is the mind and heart so very difficult? You know, what makes me get so lost? Or how come I get so stuck? Or why does this wonderful garden that Carla talked about last night turn out to be filled with weeds and broken bits of glass and rocks and nobody's watered it in ten weeks and everything's dead and dried up. Some gardens. (laughs) (laughs) So recently I spent a month on the Big Island and the home that we're lucky to have there doing a period of solo retreat that was followed by some quiet time. And while I was there, I spent a lot of time working on this piece of land that we own. And when we bought this piece of land, it's about two-thirds of an acre, it was absolutely overgrown with invasive plants. And in Hawaii, as probably many of you know, um, it's the kind of climate that if you stick something in the ground, it grows. So it's a gardener's paradise, right? And so people just happily stick things in the ground wherever they can find a piece of ground to stick it in. But unfortunately, some of the things that they stick in um, take over. And so we had this piece of land that had been completely invaded with ginger plants that were taller than I am. (laughs) And beautiful, wonderful, fragrant yellow ginger. And people will always say, oh, how beautiful except that it takes over. And we decided after a while, after we'd been there, that we wanted to uncover what was there. We were sort of interested to know, well, what's, you know, if the ginger hadn't taken over, what would be there? What would the native forest be? And so we wanted to know, you know, if we began to chop and to pull and to open up the space, um, what will we find? And so we've been doing that for six years now. (laughs) still chopping still pulling and it's been a great adventure because this particular piece of land is a wonderful piece of rainforest land um, and it's up country in Hawaii and um, there are lots of tree ferns and all kinds of other little ferns and very interesting plants and it was just an amazingly wonderful adventure to chop, 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 and all of a sudden there'd be this fern. Oh my goodness, hello, you know, work my way around it, and there'd be the fern. And so it went for many weeks. And then the ginger would try to grow back, and we'd cut it back, and, you know, like that. But we have finally made some progress. And we called ourselves, in, in Hawaii, the um, tree ferns are called hapu'u, and we called ourselves the hapu'u liberation front. <laughs> liberating them from the ginger. So, in many Buddhist texts, there are descriptions of the mind in its natural state, in its true state, luminous, undefiled, or in this reading that I use a lot, Often when I teach, it says, in its true state, mind is immaculate, being of the voidness, clear, empty, transparent, colorless, all kind of, as empty as the sky, it says. 
Um, so this is our true nature, these texts say. This is the way the mind is in its natural state, and that we all, in fact, are capable of our minds being in this place. Now I ask you, hmm. how was your mind today? <laughs> Luminous? Transparent? You know, empty? Probably not. If I asked any one of you if you were feeling quite enlightened tonight or like a Buddha tonight, the answer would be probably not, I would imagine. So you might remember that first night I read a poem, a couple of lines from a poem from Naomi Shihab Nye, where she said, there is a place to stand where you can see so many lights you forget you are one of them. So there's something here that you get the sense as you read these texts and you hear these kinds of things that maybe we're not in touch with. We're not quite so connected with. We don't really know. I mean, how if I wanted my mind to be luminous, how would I do that? We don't really know that. And we've, we've... lost our way in terms of finding that mind or maybe we never found the way in the first place we're certainly not in touch with it or another word that often gets used in the Buddhist world is we are ignorant we're not seeing so clearly so like the garden and the land on on the island or perhaps a garden that you might know here the landscape of the mind is overrun with all kinds of invasive plants and terrible weeds. So, you know, and this is not just actually in the Buddhist world. Lots of spiritual traditions have the teaching that we don't see clearly in our ordinary, everyday state. St. Paul said, now we see through a glass darkly and then face to face, you know. And there are so many mythic stories that somehow we've gotten lost and out of touch with something that is inherently ours. You know, there's the tale of the search for the precious pearl and the hero or the heroine goes out and they seek through many, many lands, dragons, enchanters, you know, all of that kind of thing. And they seek and they seek and they finally give up and they come home and they're lots older and they're very tired and then the pearl turns out to be sewn into the hem of the coat that they've worn throughout the whole trip you know they had it all the time or there's another story that I really love about a man who had a dream and and he lived in Istanbul and he said he had this dream of a, a man in Alexandria that had a fortune under his bed and and so he decided he would go find the Port Fortune. And in those days, it took a lot of time and energy to get from Istanbul to Alexandria. And he traveled and traveled, camels, boats, you know, the whole bit, and took a long, long time. And finally, he got to Alexandria, and the address was in the dream. So he went to the address, and, and there he found a man. And he said, you know, I had a dream that there was this fortune, and it was under the bed at the house at this address. And the man said, well, funny thing, you know. He said, I had a dream that it was back in Istanbul <laughs> under a bed that was in the house of a man who had the same name as you do. 
And so the man went home, and sure enough, there under his bed was the fortune. So, you know, the journey seems to be part of the deal, right? Everybody, we all seem to have to go out on the journey. And, and But in these tales, these mythic tales that really are describing the human condition, you know, the, the treasure is somehow back where you started from. And it's interesting. <clears throat> In our New Agey California culture, I have more than once run into someone who has the idea, probably might be true for some of you, that when infants come in, somehow they're completely connected to some bigger reality, and then they forget it. And I don't know, I'm a little skeptical about that. Um, but actually, it's interesting, I was thinking about it today. I was born into a family that was completely anti-religion. Religion is the opiate of the masses, they were sure. And I, at a very, very early age, became very interested in things spiritual. And beginning at about six years old, I started to raise myself Catholic secretly. <laughs> it's a pretty good way to be raised Catholic, actually. <laughs> because I got to pick and choose, you know. I could just do all the things I like to do and that I managed to be able to do without anybody knowing about it. And, but what's interesting to me, and always has been interesting to me, is that somehow there was a thread that I knew to follow. I have no idea where that knowing came from. None. But I knew to follow it, and I followed it. And I'm clearly not a Catholic these days, so obviously it took me other places. But I kept following it, you know, this thread, from one place to another. So there is a kind of knowing that that we have, that we can pay attention to. But I certainly wouldn't say um, that at that point it was any kind of awakened mind. So in Buddhism... There are three things that you pay attention to um, if you're considering the awakened mind because they're not there. There is absolutely no greed. There is absolutely no hatred. And there is absolutely no delusion. So the completely liberated person has none of those things. So if you think about it, you realize that's pretty remarkable to be completely free of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so they're called, interestingly enough, the three obscurations, often. And I always love that because it's so clear to me that these are the things that keep you from seeing what you need to see. They obscure your vision. They blind you. Um, And, you know, I think it's also important to say that we have moments, right? There might be a moment when there's way less greed or maybe even none or no hatred or no aversion or maybe even occasional moments when there's none of them and then they come back because I don't think that awakening happens all at once. But, but for, the, for them all to be gone is a really remarkable achievement. Mm-hmm. And here on the cushion, you've probably seen these some while you've been here and in the form that 
um, we talk about them a lot at a retreat. We talk about the hindrances. But these are the things that are in your way. They are hindrances. They're obstacles. And they're pretty much the same. There's greed and there's hatred. So those two are exactly the same. And then the last three, to my mind, look like forms of delusion. Restlessness, what's known as sloth and torpor, Mm -hmm. and doubt. So sloth and torpor is sleepiness. Mm -hmm. And so the last three are all other ways that you don't see so clearly. So there's a number of things that happen on the cushion that I think are important to honor while we're at this point in the retreat. Some of you may have been afflicted with what is sometimes called yogi mind. Yogi mind, think about sitting like this and giving your attention to the breath and really getting a bit focused, is you get concentrated. But the shadow side of getting concentrated is you get obsessive, Mm -hmm. right? And so you may have noticed that there will be things that maybe you have to have. You just have to have whatever it is. And you might go, you might miss a sitting, or you might do some strange thing. I'm not going to give any suggestions in order to get what you have to have on the retreat. And I've heard stories about people walking five miles into town to get chocolate and that kind of thing. So, so you know, that's a form of yogi mind. Or sometimes something is driving you nuts, and you've got to fix it. Whatever it might be, a sound, it might be... I had a big thing on one retreat about they, they had to leave the fountain on all the time. This was at a lovely Catholic center in San, San Rafael that had a beautiful fountain in a courtyard. And I even figured, I figured out where the switch was for the fountain so I could take care of it. I had no business taking care of the fountain. But my mind, I just lost all of that. And, you know, got to have. Or sometimes, of course, it manifests as a vipassana romance. And so here you are in your maybe single or maybe not state, and you see somebody walking around who's just the yummiest thing, you know, their shoes or their shawl or whatever is what really turns you on. And you just know that this is the person for you. And you've never talked to them, mind you. You I, I did that once with somebody. It turned out at the end of the retreat, he didn't even speak English. <laughs> I had a whole nother story in my mind about who this man was. And so you have this big Vipassana romance going on uh, and filled with desire and craving. Or the other, which I think Bob mentioned this afternoon when he talked a little bit about, um, about metta and you practiced it together, is the Vipassana vendetta. So that's the person who does the thing that drives you nuts in the hall or in your room or whatever, and you just, you know, so much anger and upset grows up around them that um, you just, you know, people write notes to teachers, you know, can't you get this person to leave the retreat? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I was telling the teachers today there was... And this was and another example of Yogi Mind. It's a little, it's a little gross, but that's all right. Was the note that came in several years, many years ago, 
and it said, Dear teachers, people are farting in the hall. <laughs> Would you please tell them, like, this is disgusting, it isn't appropriate for a meditation retreat. I mean, of course, we were eating nothing but beans and rice. <laughs> and we had to have them go someplace else. <laughs> so, you know, and then sometimes the mind is you know, just just filled with restlessness and it just can't sit still and sometimes it is so sleepy it's just so sleepy you're just nodding off and then of course sometimes it gets filled with doubt and you're just not sure you're in the right place at all you really ought to be doing another practice backpacking would probably be better or Sufi dancing or just about anything would be better than mindfulness practice so Ajahn Chah gives us this lovely image of the mind. He says, Your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Mm. Mm. Wonderful, wonderful passage. And so, the, and it, with the hindrances, the classic image of what the hindrances do is to cloud that pool. This mind, which has the potential for that kind of clarity, is if it's filled with desire, it's like it's somebody dropped dye into the pool. And there's just nothing but the dye. You see everything through that lens of desire. Or if there's anger and hatred, it's boiling and bubbling, and and the bubbles and the turmoil get in the way of everything that you see. Or if if it's restless, it's like the wind is blowing and the surface is so disturbed, you can't see underneath the surface. And if it's sloth and torpor, it's like it's gotten filled with algae and slime and (laughs) gunky and yucky. And then doubt is when it dries up a bit and there's not enough water in there and it gets muddy and and thick and not clear. So these hindrances, like those invasive plants, keep us from seeing the true nature of the mind and the heart. And they keep us from seeing clearly what is so about the present moment. And of course, what often happens if you're having an attack of one or more hindrances, and they do sometimes come in what we call multiple hindrance attacks, (laughs) so you can get several of them... Pardon? MHA. MHA. MHA, right, thank you. The MHA. And if you are having an MHA, you know, do we think highly of it? No. So then, of course, we get a layer of hatred and aversion about our situation, don't we? And what arises is judgment. Lots and lots of judgment. And judgment is just huge on retreats. You know, there's so much about how I'm doing it right or wrong, not doing it right usually. They're doing it right. I'm doing it wrong. 
or sometimes they're doing it wrong and I'm the only one who's doing it right. There's lots of judgment and criticism. You know, it's like it's like when you have a garden that gets a little bit out of hand and then the master gardener, we won't name anyone in this room, but we know there are a few. You know, they come to visit you and you think, oh, how could I let them see my garden? You know, what are they going to say? It's terrible. It's messy and weedy. And I know some of you were having a lot of anxiety about coming to your groups today. You know, how can I go to a group and talk about my practice in front of other people? It's a mess. One student at one retreat talked about the meditation soldier that was always with him. He thought maybe it was the sergeant who was always at his elbow, just criticizing everything that he did. And if he even did, even if it got to be a little better, you know, maybe he stayed with the breath for 10 breaths or something like that, then it was like more. Let's do it better than that. Let's go for 15 or 20. It's always harder and better and more. And so much judgment that comes on top. There was once at a retreat some brand of Kleenex that said on the bat box, surpass. <laughs> so, you know, even your Kleenex is kind of <laughs> judging. <laughs> One Zen writer a long time ago referred to all of this as the burdensome practice of judging. Mm-hmm. It is such a burden. Yeah. And it's it's actually important to remember that it's, the, the, the aversion, the judging piece is like a layer of aversion that's often over another layer of aversion. So you have to see both layers. You can't just see one of them. You've got to work your way through both in order to really open up the mind. So here you are, you know, here we are, we suffer and the mind isn't very clear, not very often, and we don't really have a clear sense of direct knowledge of what our true nature is, and probably sometimes don't feel like we have much reason to think that there is one, you know. And as I was thinking about that today, I was thinking again about this land of mine. And you know, when we bought that land, we had no idea about native forest up there. We just didn't know. And we didn't know that there was anything special about it. We didn't, we didn't see what the possibilities were. And then someone came along who said, you know, this land is really wonderful. And if you could begin to pull and get some of these things out, you know, there'd be all these natives, all of these things that are indigenous to this particular area. And so someone told us that there was some truer nature to this land than what we were seeing. And so we began to work on it. And so that's exactly what happens here, isn't it? You know, someone, somewhere along the line, someone said to you, or you read a book, or you heard a tape that said, you know, There's a way to be. There is a way that the mind can wake up that is available to everyone. And you could do it. And, you know, you could think about going to this Vipassana center or to the retreat or whatever. And now here you are. So the Buddha was completely interested 
in the nature of our suffering and the ending of it. And so all of his teaching, really, is centered around his teaching about the Four Noble Truths. And so in these teachings, which were in the first Dharma talk that he gave after his enlightenment experience, he said, there is this suffering, this dukkha, he called it. And dukkha, I'm thinking of it a lot these days as struggle. But you could also think of it as that way in which a wheel is sometimes out of round, you know, so that every time it comes to the flat place, it kind of goes clunk. And or, I, or sometimes I think of those shopping carts, you know, where one of the wheels is wonky and it just there's no way you can drive it straight. And so the Buddha is saying, you know, there's just this suffering that seems to be true for all people. Now, as I said the first night, it's really important to remember that that's not the same thing as pain. So there's pain. Pain is, as they say in twelve step work, pain is is. Um, Required and suffering is optional. Mm-hmm. So the pain is just there. It happens in bodies. It happens in life. But the suffering part, the struggle, is optional. And the Buddha says that the struggle is caused because we get attached. We cling. We want things to be different from the way that they are. And then he says, and it can end. That's really important. It can end. We don't have to keep on struggling. And then in his teaching on the Eightfold Path, he talks about a way of living, which includes living your life wisely and ethically, and it includes training the mind in things like meditation practice. So tonight, we're particularly interested in these second and third noble truths. I've been hanging out with them a lot in the last couple of weeks. Because I imagine that every one of you tonight is weary of your struggle. You know, you've been struggling and you've really seen it in these recent days as you've sat here. And your mind has had a lot of those moments of I want and it would be really fun to just hear what some of the wants are but we won't take the time. (laughs) Or there might be I hate and those would be equally interesting. Or you're filled with restlessness is sometimes called flurry and worry that place where the mind is just so moving around, anxious, goes here, goes there, goes up, goes down. Or maybe you've been afflicted with sleepiness or the doubt. And we really want it to end. We really want this struggle to end. Is it possible? Is that third noble truth true? You know, My friend Sylvia Burstein likes to say there's a third and a half noble truth, which is that if there isn't a complete ending of suffering, at least there's less. <laughs> I think that's because she's a Jewish grandmother and she wants to take care of everybody. But <sighs> So the Buddha says that there is this possibility. This possibility of the ending of suffering is available to us in every instant of time. There is no situation in which you cannot find a place of liberation in which to stand. None. It's easier in some situations than others. But if you think of, you know, stories about 
amazing people who have done acts of great self-sacrifice, great martyrdom. You know, here they are, and even in that moment, you know, the firing squad is lined up or whatever, and they're still able to find a place of freedom in which to stand. I'm always amazed by those stories. That, um, that, or someone like Nelson Mandela who can be in prison for all of those years and come out of it in some way not only whole but transformed and mm. carry on. So how do we find this place of freedom in our own mind and heart with all of this struggle? Carla this morning in the instruction used this wonderful line that from the Buddha where he says, come and see for yourself. Ehipasiko is the Pali uh, word. Come and see for yourself. And that's really the invitation of the Buddha. The Buddha wants you to find this. Wants each, Uncle Sam wants you, you know, the Buddha <laughs> wants you. Wants you to find this for yourself. And he invites us to investigate our own experience to see what is true And he understood that if we do this carefully enough, deeply enough, that we will find this place of freedom. And he said, you know, I wouldn't tell you to do this practice, to work towards waking up, if it were not possible. So he really believed that every person had the ability to wake up. All of the teachings of the Buddha, all of them, are intended to be structures for the investigation of your own heart and mind. So everything that you hear, you can take and wonder, is this true? And start checking it out against your own experience. Is this true? And the Buddha said, if it's not true for you, don't take it on. He didn't insist that you had to believe him. He really wanted you to check it out. So sometimes... You know, the recommendations are pretty simple, like be present with all of the struggle. You know, that the way out of this terrible (coughs) hindrance attack of aversion, the first step might be, often is, just acknowledge that you are filled with aversion. Filled with aversion. Mindfulness is hugely powerful just being able to allow these things to be there. There's a story, I mentioned it in one of the groups today, about Milarepa, who was the great Tibetan saint. And Milarepa walked into his meditation hall one day. You can imagine this, you know. You can be Milarepa. You walk in, and there, seated on your zabatan, are seven demons of different sizes. And so Milarepa, here they were in his cave, and he said, um, <clears throat> Welcome. I'm happy to have you here in my cave. And he meant it. You've got to mean it. That's part of the trick, I think. So here they are in your mind and heart. And welcome. And at that, three of them um, disappeared. So he busied himself making tea and getting out little things to eat and all of that. And, and he sang them a song, and he offered them tea. And with that, three more of them disappeared. 
But the one that was left was really, really big, the biggest demon. And if you've ever seen Tibetan paintings, you know, those demons, they have great big eyes and fangs and claws and blood, and they're not very friendly. (coughs) And I'm sure some of you have had these experiences as you've come in here. It's like that kind of demon comes to meet you on your cushion. So Milarepa sang him another song and welcomed him even more. And then Milarepa picked himself up and laid himself in the mouth of the demon. And with that, the last demon disappeared. Mm-hmm. So it's that kind of presence that's sometimes asked of us, where we actually lay ourselves right in the mouth of whatever that difficulty is that has come to us. And, you know, someone spoke to it today in one of the groups and said, you know, this fear came back to visit me. And I recognized it and was willing to sit with it. And it made all the difference to just be able to recognize it and to sit with it. And there are, with the hindrances, because sometimes they get really difficult and sometimes mindfulness doesn't, it's there and it helps and you're not so caught, but it doesn't, they're not gone. And so there are antidotes too. You can begin to train the mind to go in another direction. So if you're filled with desire, you can reflect about impermanence. So, you know, you're fantasizing, this is the person for you. And then, but as Jack likes to say, you can imagine the marriage and then the divorce. And, uh, <laughs> or maybe they, they, you, you get old and then they get wrinkled and they're not so pretty to look at mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And if you're filled with anger, you can practice loving kindness. It's a wonderful recommendation on a retreat like this. If you're, and I'm glad Bob talked about it this afternoon, that if you're having a Vipassana vendetta, the practice to use is loving kindness practice for this person who... Um, is here also learning to meditate. There are all kinds of energizing things you can do with sloth and torpor. And um, my favorite is actually s- sitting on the edge of the well um, mm-hmm. or sitting in the forest where there are, in this case, mountain lions. Mm-hmm. And um, that will wake you up a bit. Mm-hmm. Concentrating practices in order to offset restlessness um, and all kinds of support for um, doubt. Hmm. It does help to see that when we get caught in these really difficult places, we get really identified with it. You know, that's part of the critical mind, I think. And so this is me, the bad meditator, mm-hmm. and I'm not doing it right one more time. And of course that gets kind of cyclic. And again this afternoon as I was writing, my husband and I are taking ballroom dance classes. And we had a class this week, and we were learning this kind of interesting new move that involved things with your arms and things with your feet. And Russell was having a terrible time. He just couldn't get it. And and he just got more, and, and I could see him, you know, and he got more and more frustrated, and the more frustrated he got, then he would contract a little bit more, and then he would try it again, and then he would make an even worse mistake, and then he would be more uptight, and pretty soon, you know, he was just kind of spinning and, and then we, we stopped and he took a breath. And, but we do that, right? Every one of us in this room has done that place where we get just caught in being, in his case, the bad dancer, but here, the bad meditator. 
So one of the things that's very helpful to remember, not only about our difficulties, but actually about all of us, all of this, is, are you ready? It's not personal. It's not personal. None of this is about you. You know, you have to, as one text I came across this week says, you have to give up being the star of your own movie. You are one of, what, 600 billion people? Six billion or 600 billion? Six billion. billion. I I always, I like 600 billion. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe that's because my current craze is looking at images from... Um, outer space, you know, the nebulae and the galaxies and seeing all of those millions and billions of stars and vast, vast space. And, you know, everything is arising and passing and changing galaxies and world systems Mm -hmm. without end. And it's really interesting to think about that because here's this vast, vast, vast space and reality, all of these things happening And somehow, it's all come together in this particular moment of time and space to be you. Isn't that interesting? It's not personal. It's just the conditions were right to make Mary Grace Orr, for whatever reason. And it's going to be here for a while. You know, keep manifesting as Mary Grace for a while. And then at some point, the conditions won't be there. And all of that nebulae and galaxies and all of that, that's just part of the deal. It just all keeps going, doing its dance. And when we begin to have that kind of bigger picture, what that actually allows us to do is to let go a little bit. It's not so personal. It's not a great day on the cushion, maybe, but it's not the end of the world. It's just the conditions weren't right today to have a good day on the cushion. Maybe tomorrow, we don't know, you know. And and so that allows us a little more ease and a little more ability to soften and to open. In the end, all we can do is to do the practice. Like Carla was recommending last night, you know, you till the earth, you plant the seeds. You don't poke at them every day to see if they've come up yet. You know, we just do the practice. And what's interesting is sometimes when we settle into that, just like when we work in the garden, we suddenly realize it makes me really happy to be here, just sitting and walking, listening to the birds patting the cat if you're lucky enough to have her come by you it's very simple you just hear you just do it someone today talked about how happy they were to be here and how all the sadness was arising at the same time and both things were deeply true you know and we all know this you know those of us who garden know how wonderful it is to spend hours in the garden just pulling weeds maybe or doing this and doing that and if gardens aren't your thing maybe tinkering on your car or whatever it is that you do that allows that kind of relaxation and softening and this happiness is very useful it's very helpful to remember 
that happiness as you do this practice. Because it's one of the things that really um, opens us and allows the mind to focus and to get clear when we're happy. If you come to it like a job and you've got to achieve, you're kind of toast right from the get-go. So it's very helpful to have that. helps us to hold our suffering just lightly enough so that we perhaps have a better chance of seeing. It's not me, it's not mine, I don't have to own it. And that there is an awareness, there is a spacious mind that can (coughs) hold all of this, that can hold the whole process with kindness and compassion. So in Hawaii, I weed and I chop year after year. Gradually the land has shown itself and the native plants are flourishing and spreading and coming back in and we're bringing some back in and the true nature of this particular piece of land reveals itself. And so here we do the same thing. We weed and we chop and day after day, sitting after sitting, we keep clearing and gradually, gradually the true nature of the mind shows itself. We can remember our happiness to be doing this and in that we can also extend kindness and compassion to all beings but most especially to ourselves as we do this practice over and over and over. And so as we do that then we find that place in the mind and the heart that holds this experience with equanimity, that holds it in kindness and in compassion and gladness. And perhaps gradually we come to see that place in the mind that my friend Ajahn Sumedho and others like to call the one who knows, the one who knows, that in the mind. Mm -hmm. So we begin to realize our true nature, which of course was always there and available all Mm -hmm. along and we find it, we make it real, we realize it, if you will. So I'd like to end with a poem, a bit from T.S. Eliot, probably familiar um, to all of you. He says, it's from the Four Quartets, he says, we shall not cease from exploration And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown remembered gate when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. And the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall, and the children in the apple tree not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, when the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. So please sit just as you are, and let's breathe together for just a moment.
and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. Thank you very much for listening to the Dharma. And please enjoy your walking for the next 35 minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.